want to talk to you this morning again a little bit about that coming of the Lord. What to value when all is said and done. Last summer, Graydon and myself, as you know, went on a mission adventure in Tanzania. We were seeking to do Graydon's second missionary journey, like the Apostle Paul's. Go backtracking through the people that he had come in contact with and minister to the families of the people. And when we got to the far west coast of Tanzania, we came to a barrier called Lake Tanganyika. And uh, if you know me, um, my thing is fire and water. Now, I know Graydon is really into mountains. Whenever he sees a mountain, he wants to climb it or whatever. I'm into fire and I'm into water. I don't know. If there's a shrink in the midst of us here today. He may have some deep, dark thing that's going on in my life that I don't know about. But I like water. And when I saw Lake Tanganyika, I said, you know what, Graydon? We've got to get a picture of this amazing lake, especially at sunset. So we set out to do just that. And we were wandering around uh, trying to find an access onto this lake. But everywhere we went, there was barriers and obstacles and giant fences. And so we kept walking and walking around this town called Kigoma. And finally, I found this four or five star resort. So we went to the, um, the guard at the front, and it was obvious that we were not locals. And uh, we said, can we come in and take a look at this amazing resort? And I guess he assumed that we were possibly live ones, potential customers, and so he said, yes, you can come in. So we went in, and we were wandering around the grounds of this place, and, and we walked immediately down to this beautiful, these beautiful gardens and this wonderful grassy area, and walked down, and you can see that uh, Mr. Tripod has set up camp there to take a picture. Well, it, we got there for, we were there for a few moments, and all of a sudden, this guy all dressed up really well, and some sort of attendant, some sort of official person in the resort came running down saying, what are you doing on the grass? Get off the grass. I walked up to him and he said, I said, uh, he said, uh, well, I said to him, well, we're just, we just want to take some pictures of the, the beautiful sunset and all that. He said, can I see your key, please? I said, well, we're, we're not really guests here. I said, but we could be. There's potential. I have a card in my pocket that would make it possible. And he said, um, what's, what's with you Americans? You always have to walk on the grass. And I said, well, first of all, I'm a Canadian. I should have left at, at American. But I, I said, I'm a Canadian. And I said, that's what we do. We walk on grass. And I said, I didn't see any sign that says don't walk on the grass. I said, you have a beautiful lake here. You have a beautiful resort. You have a nice beachfront here. I said, when Americans come to your resort, they're going to want to walk on your grass. They're going to want to walk down to your beach. That's what we do. So he said, well, we're going to have to do something about this. Something's going to have to be done about this. And I said, well, I don't really think anything has to be done about this. You know, we'll just take a couple of pictures and we'll be off your grass. So anyway, finally, I, I, saw, I noticed there was a patio there and there was a big TV and there was a soccer game on. So Africans being relational people and me being the king of relationship, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll simply, I'll, I'll ask him about soccer. I said, what's your favorite soccer team? He said, Manchester United. I said, that's my favorite soccer team. <laughs> now, now, seriously, 
It is my favorite soccer team. I, I know you think I was just... A, no, it is my favorite soccer team. And so pretty soon we were, we were sharing Cokes on the patio watching a soccer game together and the whole grass thing went away. Don't you think we value the wrong things in life? Don't you find that? Valuing the grass. We value buildings. We value our possessions. We value our cars. What is it that God values? I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want you to see if you can determine from the reading of this text what it is that God really wants us to value. When all is said and done, what does God value? Of all the possible pursuits and human exploits and things that could be valued, there is one thing that stands out above all others. See if you can notice. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal he, we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery. Nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last, or maybe better translated, fully. But, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought... Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did. Again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. When all is said and done, what do we value? What is it? You can answer. Dwayne, you can answer. You said I needed to tell you when you can speak, so now you can speak. I value Christ. Well, that's good. I'm glad you value Christ. 
What does Paul value? He values people. He values those people that came to know Jesus Christ. The big hope of saved people in the Lord's presence at his coming because you risked telling the good news. And you know what we call this? We call this evangelism. Or we call it good newsism. Or we call it uh, good newsing people. I, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. It's risking telling people that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again and that they can have a personal relationship with him that will transform their lives. That's what it's talking about. That's what Paul valued. Paul, as usual, uh, found himself defending his actions against continual criticism that his ministry always seemed to provoke. And because uh, the evil one was always trying to derail him. And it seems that um, some nasty people had come along and had put in the hearts and the minds of the Thessalonians that Paul really didn't love them. I mean, he went away, he told them the gospel, he left, and he, he didn't come back. So surely he must not love you. And so they were, they were asking the question. They obviously wrote him a letter and said, Paul, do, do you love us? Or, or did you want something else from us? We, we're not really sure. And, and so I want to share with you f- five insights that I think the Apostle Paul gives us here about his heartbeat and, and what really mattered to him and what he really valued and, and what evangelism really means. And I think the first point he makes here is that evangelism has no other motive than love for people and their highest welfare. He tells them, or he reminds them, when I came to you in Thessalonica, I had just come from Philippi. And I told you how nasty it was in Philippi. How I had been thrown, we'd been beaten, we'd been stripped, we'd been thrown in prison. It was a rotten time. We had suffered much, and then we move on to Thessalonica, and we try to proclaim the gospel, and we're met with the same kind of opposition there. He said, we suffered a whole lot to come to you. And he writes in the text, we didn't come with tricks or with flattery as if we wanted to get something from you. We didn't come to you with hypocrisy. We weren't wearing masks to pretend we were something we were not. We didn't try to get some sort of congratulations from you. We didn't speak words that we hoped you would praise us. It was, certainly wasn't about our ego, and we certainly weren't trying to be territorial. No, we sacrificed time and money and comfort and reputation and emotional toil and insults and criticism. Why? Because we love you. We care about you. There's no other motive than the fact that we loved you and we wanted the highest, highest welfare for you. Not to get anything. But to give of ourselves, to give of our lives, to give of our love. Because in verse 4 it says, we have been entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted by God. We've been given, literally, we've been given a trust. Do you understand that? Do you understand the significance of that? That Jesus Christ has handed us the good news, has given us the gospel as a trust. And a trust means you have to be faithful to that trust and take and use it for God's glory. No, we were entrusted with something very special and very precious. We came to give it, to please God. We understand there's a serious accountability issue here. We're not looking for praise from men, not from anybody else. But we're men approved by God. We gave like parents. We're like a mother to you. We're like a father. 
When you're a parent, it feels like you give all the time, doesn't it? Is that what we mostly do? It's like give, give, give. When's it coming back? Jordan, when's it coming back? Thank you. Evangelism, secondly, is no other method than a reflection of the good news itself. He said, uh, pay attention to how we lived among you. We were gentle among you like a mother, verse 7. We were like a father among you who deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you. Now listen to this. The only methods that have fruitful traction are those methods that model the product itself. Paul said we lived the gospel. We weren't just talking the gospel to you. We, we actually lived the good news. The good news is about something completely different from the values and vision of our world. We, we brought that to you. We brought you something different. You saw our lives. You saw how we lived. In the world, uh, uh, the, the end can justify the means. But not so in the presentation of the gospel. The means justify the end. It demonstrates the authenticity of this good news. Like a mother, we let you look at our lives. We worked hard among you. We took support from other believers in other places. We didn't burden you. We gave leadership by example, not by decree. So that you would embrace the call to glory. It says here in verse 12, God who calls you into his kingdom and glory to be able to represent him no longer to fall short of the glory of God, but to increasingly become, by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, more and more Christ-like, so that we reflect his glory. That was the method, Paul says. He says, thirdly, though, evangelism is no other message than the very word of God, and not words of men. Look what, no, look what we see in verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. This is not tricks, no gimmicks, just truth. It's not man's wisdom, pop culture, psychobabble. Not feel-good, positive-thinking garbage. That wasn't what we brought to you. We brought to you the words from God, the maker of heaven and earth, the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one. Who among humanity would dare to deliberate on the word of God? Who would say, well, I like that. I think I'll take a piece of that, but I'm going to leave that behind. No, no, when, when I offered you the word of God, Paul says, you actually believed it was the word of God and not the word of men. Our job is to plant the word of God in the minds of people who've never heard about him. That's our job. It's to plant the word of God in people's minds That's why the word of God is called the seed. Evangelism is holy gardening. That's what it is. So that the spirit of God might take the raw material of the word of God that's been planted in the minds of people and transform them by the work of God. 
into believers. Do you realize that every time you honor Jesus Christ by your example in front of someone who has had the word of God planted in their mind, you are watering the garden. That makes our lives very, very significant. That makes our day-to-day behavior in front of people extremely urgent. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, I, Paul, to the Corinthians, planted, and Apollos watered. But God caused it to grow. That's how the partnership works. That's how we all have a share in all of this that God is doing. He goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So how do you know that the good news has taken in a person's life? How do you know that they've really embraced the truth? How do you know that new life in Christ has really occurred? Well, Paul tells us here. He says, you, you actually received the word of God as it was, in which this word that is at work, verse 13, in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen. Evangelism has no other confirmation than changed lives. Transformation of behavior. It works its way out in in, in three specific ways, Paul says here. The power to change. It becomes noticeable that biblical effects in your life demonstrate that you've really received the Lord. That's what he's writing back to Thessalonians and saying to them. I I see your life is changing. I I see the, the biblical effects taking place in your life. But not only that. He said, I, I see the, uh, the fact that you're imitators of God's churches in Judea. Now, how did that happen? Did the Apostle Paul organize a trip and take all of the people from Thessalonica uh, on to Israel to, to, to have a field trip and take a look at how the churches in, in Judea were functioning? How did they become imitators of the churches in Judea? Paul had only spent about three weeks with them. How, how was it that he could look at them and say... You look exactly like the people who are worshiping Jesus Christ in Judea. It's because when Christ comes into your life, he changes you. It's the same spirit of God working in the church of Judea, is working in the church of Thessalonica, that's working in the church of Philippi, that's working in the church of Corinth, that's working in the church in Athens. That's how Christ functions. And so we have the same traits, the same characteristics, the same spiritual DNA. You've experienced this in your life. You've gone around the world and you've seen people. You've bumped into someone, you find out they're a believer, and you realize, hey, they have the same dreams, they have the same aspirations, they have the same purpose, they have the same desire, they love the same Christ. We seem the same. Why? Because we're the same family. Paul said, that's a marker, man. That tells me that something's changed in your lives. You, you look the same as the Christians I met in Judea. You've got the same spiritual DNA. But he also noticed that they were willing to suffer. When things got tough, persecution came upon them, they didn't cut and run. 
We read back in Acts chapter 17 where Jason, one believer that was mentioned, Thessalonica, had to post a bond on behalf of the Apostle Paul and his evangelistic crew. One would assume that uh, if Paul ever came back that he was going to lose and forfeit his bond. Paul says, I I saw this. I I realize you, you people are willing to suffer. And he talks about the specifics of the attack from, in two ways. Those who would manifest the absence of God by opposing evangelism. He says here, it's like the same thing that happened in Judea. Those churches suffered from the Jews. The, the ones who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. You realize there are people who get in the way. Oppose evangelism. Sure you do. You've met them. You've had it happen in your own life. People get in the way and and want to prevent you from saying what what God wants you to say to somebody because they don't want someone to be saved. The reality is, Paul says, is um, how God views this is that they are heaping up their sins to the full. (laughs) As I read this, I realize God's basically telling us don't mess around with people who are evangelizing. Don't get in their way. Don't oppose. You're heaping up sins to the max. And then he says, the wrath of God has come upon them at last, or fully. We described the wrath of God last week. It's found in Romans chapter 1. It says there, God's wrath has been revealed. How, does God, how is God revealing his wrath? He is pulling back his influence, his effect, so that people do all kinds of things that are in opposition to God. He says, that's how, it, that's how you recognize it. But he says, glory to God, because when that opposition came upon you, you're not cutting and running. You're not leaving the faith. He says, that's evidence to me that it really took. Not only do people oppose the gospel evangelism, but he says here, Satan, tried, Satan stopped this as well. Satan puts obstacles in the pathway of God's people. Do you know that? He tries to prevent them from doing the will of God, following through. Satan hindered us, literally. That's what he does. That's his modus operandi. He's the one who puts obstacles in the way. Ultimately, of course, God prevails. But he talks about this. He says, you didn't, you didn't cut and run. And, and then finally, he gets to the, near the end of the letter, and he says, the end of this part of the letter, and I... I sort of think he's saying, you still, really don't, you still really don't believe I love you, do you? You're, you're, still, you're still out there thinking, I'm not sure. I, I mean, we've read so far in the letter, what, yeah, you suffered, Paul, and you came to us. And, yeah, you didn't trick us and all of that. And yes, we did receive all of this. But, but Paul, do you really love us? Please tell us that you love us. It matters to people you know. It matters that you love them. Evangelism produces no other comparable joy than that of the souls of people saved and presented to Jesus at his coming. He said, love you. You are our hope, our joy, our crown at the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm going to turn this into Canadian context for you. You know what Paul really said to them? Love you. You are our Stanley Cup. That's what he said to them. Honestly, that's what he said. And I know Leaf fans would really, really resonate with that because it's something you really love to feel one day. Could you feel what it's like just to hold that Stanley Cup above your head? 
I hear a Bruin fan laughing back there, man. <laughs> he, he said, you, you, don't, you, you don't believe me, do you? That's what he says. You are, he said, in their context, you are the crown of glory. You know what that was? That was the wreath that was put on the runner at the, vic, the victory runner. The guy who came in and won the marathon. They put that thing on his head. That was, the, that was the trophy. That was the award. That was the ancient Stanley Cup. Love you, he said. You are it. You are the top. We're going to present you to Jesus Christ when he comes again. You are our hope, our joy, our glory. You are in what we take pride. You will be the evidence to Jesus Christ that we took the Great Commission seriously when he comes. Which will be the final review and reward time for faithful evangelism. Brothers and sisters, someday Jesus Christ is coming back again. He's going to come back and Calvary Baptist Church is going to step forward. What's going to be our, our joy, our big hope, our crown of glory? It's not going to be this building, this property. It's not going to be anything that we have. It's not going to be any program we've ever done. It's going to be you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And it's going to be the people we bring with us. Standing in the presence of Christ, evidence that we took the Great Commission seriously. What is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we will glory Is it not you? Indeed, he says, it is you. It's a team effort, you know. Some plant, some give, some pray, some say a word in season, some pass by and show a great example of Jesus Christ to someone who has the word of God planted in them. Some encourage. By way of modern technology, we have um, a picture that has arrived before Pastor Jonathan. Actually, he's probably just landed in Toronto Airport now. This is the Indian class this past week in Calcutta. Men who've received their books to take home tools of the trade. You were looking for Pastor Jonathan. He's a tall, white guy at the very back. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of glory when Christ returns? It's not going to be those guys because we didn't lead those guys to the Lord. But many of them have just come recently. But you know what they're out there doing? With the tools that we've purchased for them? And, the, and, and the, the willingness of you to send staff to teach them? They're going to go back to their villages. And they're going to work hard to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And men and women 
are going to come to Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what. Those people that they lead to the Lord because of the resources that we participated in are our hope, our joy, and our crown of glory when Christ comes back. Isn't that a great thing? Let's keep on with a passion taking the message of Jesus Christ every possible place we can go. I pray that God will do a great work in our region and around the world for his glory. Father, when all is said and done, it won't be buildings and cars and programs. It'll be people who have come to Christ because those entrusted with the gospel risked taking it to others. Father, I pray that many may be credited to our account, not for our glory. Oh, no, not for our glory. But for your glory alone, may we give you all of these trophies because Jesus died for them, not us. Jesus died. Thank you, Father. I pray a blessing on that graduating class this past Um, this past week. And I pray, Father, that those tools and the resources and the teaching may be used to your glory, evangelizing India, that many people might come to Christ. Father, reignite a passion for evangelism among us, even from this room today, to take the gospel message today to our region. I ask this in Jesus' name.